Thank you, team. Good morning, church. It's great to be together with you today. It's beautiful that the sun is coming out now. It was a little wet and rainy coming in this morning, but maybe we'll see some sun today. We have a new memory verse for the month of April. Uh, Easter's coming up. A good verse for us to keep in our minds this time of year from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Let's say it together uh, this morning. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 25, 8. Looking forward to memorizing that together with you all this month. I am excited and honored today to have Dr. Mike Stollard with us um, <clears throat> during my time. Uh, at what was then called Baptist Bible College. I had the privilege to uh, sit in on a number of seminars that Dr. Stollard taught. In fact, one of the most formative uh, prayer retreats that I ever participated in, uh, Dr. Stollard uh, spoke at, and it was very powerful and very transformative uh, in my life and something that has stayed with me uh, for all of these years. And so I look forward to uh, hearing him open the Word of God and share from his Word this morning. Before he comes, uh, he's going to lead in uh, with a video. And so enjoy uh, this uh, kind of recap of Friends of Israel and their ministry and, and what they do. And then Dr. Stollard will come. The 1930s were a fragile time. Propaganda throughout Europe was already paving the way and dehumanizing the Jewish people. And in November 1938, Kristallnacht, Night of the Broken Glass, happened in Germany. Synagogues, homes, schools, and businesses of Jewish people were destroyed. And it was at this point things went from bad to worse. The Jewish people were ripped from their homes, put into ghettos, and sent to concentration camps, where later, more than six million would be systematically murdered. Here in the United States, a group of Christians in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, had been praying for the Jewish people in Europe, and were convinced they had to do more. In James chapter 1 it says, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only. And that is what this group did. Something was stirred inside of them, and the Friends of Israel Refugee Relief Committee was born. And they started to put their time and money into saving Jewish lives. But why would they do this? Because they knew from Scripture that the Jewish people are God's chosen, and the apple of His eye. After all these years, the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries mission has not changed, and the gospel is at the core of everything we do. Around the globe, our teams are serving Jewish people in need, providing food, medicine, clothing, personal care, and other basic necessities. Our free clinic in the heavily Jewish populated area of Buenos Aires, Argentina, provides around-the-clock medical care for those in need. Bible camps in Poland and Israel for both children and adults give a safe place for learning God's Word. We support pastors and believers in Israel both spiritually and financially. Teams travel year-round to areas of Eastern Europe providing daily necessities to Jewish people in oppressed areas. In Australia and New Zealand, we're opening our homes to traveling Israeli soldiers. Our workers around the world are serving the Jewish people in practical ways by volunteering in area Holocaust museums, Jewish community centers, and caring for Holocaust survivors and their families. Our Bible teachers share in churches and conferences 
that there is and always has been a clear plan, a past, present, and future for Israel and the Jewish people. Resources like Israel My Glory magazine, videos, books, and the Friends of Israel Today radio program are shared around the world providing teaching on sound doctrine and a biblical perspective on current events surrounding Israel. The Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry loves bridging the Jewish community and Christians together. With anti-Semitism on the rise, we need advocates in the Christian community to stand with the Jewish people. Our tours to the Holy Land allow Christians to walk where Jesus walked and experience the miracle of modern-day Israel. Our volunteer trips, Origins, and Ased provide Christians a chance to serve alongside Israelis. These trips open Christians' eyes to the realities of daily life in Israel, but more importantly, it gives them a heart for the Israeli people. Our mission has stayed focused all of these years to teach biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while loving and standing with the Jewish people. We believe God's promises to Israel are never-ending, and the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries message has not changed because the Word of God never changes. God has called us to reach the nations and he has called us to love his chosen people, Israel. And just as our founders did in 1938, we stand with the Jewish people in their time of need because we love what God loves. Good morning to you. Uh, I'm so happy for the invitation to come and speak to you, and uh, I never take those uh, for granted. Uh, I am not God's greatest gift to you. Jesus is God's greatest gift to you. Uh, but I want to share the Word of God, and that's important. And I appreciate you watching that video. Last Sunday, I was preaching at a little uh, town in Poland. I went to Poland from March 23rd to 28th to look at the two refu Jewish refugee camps centers that we had set up as we try to get Jewish refugees out of Ukraine. In fact, tomorrow, one of our, our Ukrainian worker who uh, her mother-in-law lost her apartment, bombed in Kiev, and she got out with her husband. Uh, she's going back with two Polish workers tomorrow to, to Ukraine to get another busload of Jewish people out. And they stay with us for a few days. We help them with, uh, of course, we provide room and, and board for them. Uh, but then we also help them with paperwork, then we take them to the Israeli embassy, and then the Israeli embassy puts them in a hotel, the next day they fly to Israel. And about 99% of those Jewish people that we've helped, and it's in the hundreds of people, uh, have gone on to Israel. And th these are indeed trying times. And last, in that little uh, church that I spoke at, I preached on Romans 8, 28 through 39, you know, it starts out, um, you know, that... God works all things together for good, even Russian invasions of Ukraine. God is a master at turning ashes into beauty. And we need to remember that uh, as we think ahead. There is a, a book table out there near the entrance to the church where I have some books from the Friends of Israel and uh, a couple of my books that uh, are there for you to purchase. I wish I could give them away, but I cannot afford that. Um, I can give away something else, though. There are sign-ups out there for a one-year free subscription to Israel My Glory magazine. And everywhere I go, they let me do that, give out free subscriptions for one year. After that year, they'll ask you to pay to, to have another year. That's how that goes. But uh, I encourage you to sign up. If you would like our magazine, it's a Bible study magazine. also has some updates on ministry. 
and updates on current events happening in Israel. But in this time, my message is going to be centered on the hope of God's coming kingdom, no more tears. This is my favorite passage in the Bible. It always has been since early in my Christian days. In fact, my very first sermon to a church in 1977 was on this passage. I have a cassette tape, I have a cassette tape of that. Do you guys remember what a cassette tape is? <laughs> I will never let you listen to that sermon. I hope that I have improved over the years. Let's place this in the context of the book of Revelation. We've had a horrible seven years of tribulation. The intro to that's in chapters four and five, where the book of Revelation answers the question, what gives God the right to pour out his wrath? And then uh, chapters six through 19 is the actual pouring out of that wrath, the tribulation wrath, uh, sometimes referred to that as the day of the Lord wrath of God. Uh, that comes upon the earth, and then at the end of that, it's a seven-year period, at the end of that, in Revelation 19, Jesus comes, and by the power of his word, the sword in his mouth, he speaks and destroys his enemies, including the Antichrist and the false prophet. And then in the very next chapter, Revelation 20, we have a millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ, but that's just the kickoff party. Now, in the next, in the ABF hour, I'm going to speak on why I'm a premillennialist. And I'm going to argue that uh, the thousand years is not all there is to God's kingdom. It is a forever kingdom. Did you notice the word forever a few times in our music this morning? It's a forever kingdom. The thousand years is just the kickoff party. And uh, I'm looking forward to that time. But the time when the curse is removed is going to be in the eternal state that follows the millennium. And that's where we are, Revelation 21 and 22. After Revelation 20, we've had the great white throne, final judgment of the lost. And now this gives us an ex the experience that we will have when this old earth is made new. So let's walk through this passage and uh, do the best we can to understand it. We have, first of all, a new heaven and a new earth in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. A few things here to talk about. The new heaven is probably talking about the atmosphere, maybe cosmic space, but I don't think it's talking about the abode of God. Remember the three heavens in the Bible? Uh, there's the, the sky where the birds fly in the heavens. And then there's the cosmic space where the stars are. And then there's the third heaven that Paul talks about, which is the abode of God. It's where God has chosen to localize his presence as his home. Of course, we know God is everywhere all the time. And it's not that part of him is here and the other part's in Mississippi. All of God is everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent in fullness. Uh, but he chooses to localize his presence in a burning bush, in a temple, in a tabernacle, inside of Christians today. And he is, has a localized presence in this place, I take it as a real physical place, called heaven. I don't think that's what this is talking about because that's going to come down in verse 2 as we look at it. So I think it's the atmosphere 
of the, of the new earth and the new earth. Uh, it's interesting. What does that mean, a new earth? And I, in my notes, I have purification or annihilation. Those are two options. Scholars are divided on that. But I'll tell you uh, which one is right. <laughs> I can understand both views, that it's purification, that the old earth is annihilated, and there's a brand new planet that God gives us. And that might be wonderful. At the end of 2 Peter 3, language is very strong. Uh, elements melting in fervent heat. That may refer to that time at the end of the millennium when uh, the old earth is uh, just with fervent heat dealt with. Now, does that mean it's annihilated, just burned up? Uh, it's interesting that destruction language is also used for Noah's flood, that the earth was destroyed. Several passages talk about that, yet the earth is still here. So I'm not convinced that the language of uh, fervent heat, the elements melting with fervent heat, means the end of everything. Another thing that's very important to me is Romans 8. In Romans 8, it says that all creation groans, waiting for its day of redemption. All the created order must be redeemed. And the earth, if it was just annihilated, that's not redemption. That's throwing it away. And so I believe in renovation, that God is going to purify the earth by fire. Just purify it by fire. I remember when I was a young boy. I was probably about eight years old. I lived in a, a little town called Eufaula, Alabama. Down there on the Chattahoochee River right against Georgia. And my parents, who were not churchgoers, uh, later uh, my dad became a Christian. Uh, but they were from the South, and they knew all the Bible stories. Because everybody down South knows the Bible stories. And don't know what possessed them to tell my twin brother Jimmy and I this, but I went on the carport one Saturday morning while we were out playing. Uh, they called us over and told us that w once upon a time, God destroyed the world in a flood. And one day he's coming back to destroy the earth by fire. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that scared me silly. And when I went to bed that night, I just pulled the covers over my head. It bothered me all day. And I pulled the covers over my head and I said this prayer to God. Of course, I wasn't a believer. But I said, God, don't ever let mom, dad, me or Jimmy ever die. That was my prayer. There is a fire that's coming. But I think it's a purifying fire of the earth. Not a destruction fire where it's annihilated. And so we, we see here a new heaven and a new earth purified. It could be bigger. Doesn't have to be the same size. It could be a number of different things. Whatever God wants it to be, it will be. But then notice this other little strange thing here at the end of the verse 1. It says, and the sea was no more. And some of you look at that and go, bummer. <laughs> I mean, we like the ocean. We like to go to the beach. There's the ocean. You mean God's not going to let us go to the ocean, to the beach? I mean, wow, what a bummer. Uh, and no lakes and no other thing. What, what's, what's going on with that? Uh, but you have to remember, back in the creation, there was water on the earth. 
from the created earth. Go back to Genesis 1. It was not absent. So it could be here that it is figurative. If you remember what happens at the end of chapter 20, or in the, before the great white throne judgment, you have Satan deceiving the nations. And I'm going to say it this way, the sea of nations. And that, that rebellion of the sea of nations is put down. And if you go back to chapter 13 in Revelation, verse 1, the beast, the Antichrist, comes out of the what? Sea. And so I think this is probably a reference to that. No more rebellion coming from the nations. But it's a tricky one. It's hard to, uh, to know for sure. So little is given to us there. But then we move to verse 2 in the New Jerusalem. And I think this is the abode of God, the third heaven. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You know what this means? God is changing his address. Where is God's third heaven, the abode of God, where is that going to ultimately be? It's going to be the new earth. God is coming down to live with us. Now, that's not true in the millennium. In the millennium, Jesus is here, but where's the Father? He's still in heaven. But here, the triune God is coming down. And that's interesting. This, this abode of God comes down from God. He's coming with it. He sends it, and he's coming with it. And notice that it's a holy place. It's called the holy city. We say that now about Jerusalem. We call it the holy city that's set apart. But in, in those days, it's going to be set apart like never before. Totally set apart from sin. There's sin in Jerusalem now. People get killed there. People murdered there. There's trouble there. This is coming and there won't be any trouble evermore. But notice also that it says that it's beautiful. It says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever seen an ugly bride? If you have, don't tell me. I don't want to miss that. I've done a lot of weddings over the years as a minister, and I've never seen an ugly bride. They know how to make themselves look good on the, on the day. And just think about that. You know, I'm, I always, when I'm the pastor up front and I'm doing a wedding, I did this with my, my two boys. They're standing there with the, with the bride, the, the men with them, and then the, the bride appears at the back, ready to come down the aisle. And when she first appears, I always take a glance look at the groom to see the gleam in his eye as she begins to walk down that aisle to him. Captured that feeling. That's how God wants us to feel right here in this promise. This beautiful city is coming to us like that moment when the bride comes down to the groom. He wants us to notice that, how splendorous this is and how great it is. 
but the, the, the abode of God coming down, uh, the main thing about that is not the holiness, it's not the, the beauty. Uh, and, and, you know, in the city, you know, the, the description of it is given later on. If you come down to verse 9, I mean, there are a lot of things that are said about the walls, about the gates. And they measured the wall. The city lies, in verse 15, the city lies four square. It's length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. It's kind of a cube city, supposedly, uh, 12,000 to 15,000 miles. Uh, um, or stadia, 1,200, 1,500 miles. Uh, stadia is the length around an arena. That's where that word comes from. And every city in the, uh, in the Roman Empire had its own measurement for stadia because their stadiums weren't the same size. So we don't really know exactly how many miles that is. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And then it has a list of all those jewels. And at the end of that, verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. Do you know what that means? That means that's a very big clam. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Listen, it was not, it's not modern-day preachers that made up the idea of the, the streets of gold and the pearly gates. It's right here in the text of Scripture. And you know what? I take it at face value. There's no reason not to. Whatever it is, it can be more than what it has said, but it can't be less. God has provided a beautiful future for us. He values beauty. Martin Luther once said, and you sang A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one of his songs today. Martin Luther noticed that the farmers were coming to church uh, with manure on their boots. And he, and he made this comment. He said, the people in the church need truth, but they need beauty as much as they need truth. And God has promised us beauty for eternity. But the most important thing is not the beauty, not the holiness. It is God himself. Look at verse 3, the presence of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Notice this is the full presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Fully, the presence of God will be unlike anything you and I have ever experienced. It will overwhelm us. Later on in chapter 21, notice verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city. Remember what the temple was for? The temple was there for them to deal with their sin through sacrifices, pointing ahead to the sacrifice of the Messiah. But it's also the place where God's presence showed up once a year on the Day of Atonement. It represented the presence of God. But now it says, I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's Jesus. So we won't need a temple because we have the full presence of God. 
So we don't need to point to something to show us and remind us of his presence because we will automatically sense it and feel it. I find that quite amazing. And also in uh, chapter 22, verse 4, it says, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And I like the last little phrase of that verse, and they will reign forever and ever. Have you ever heard Handel's Messiah? Remember how that uh, Hallelujah Chorus goes? And they shall reign for a thousand years. It doesn't do that. It's forever. And here's a passage in Revelation that shows us that God's kingdom, our future, is forever with the full presence of God. But then we come to my favorite, actual favorite verse, and that's verse 4. Now, what does the full presence of God mean? It means no more curse. I call it God's greatest promise. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That was in the Isaiah passage you're memorizing. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Lest we rush over those words and not think through what that really means. I've got a list of things, about 40. I'll hurry through them. A list of things that are in this world now that won't be there. I'll put a few humorous ones in just to keep you awake. First one, no shots at the doctor's office. Hallelujah. Okay. No more COVID vaccines. No more masks. Okay. No more doctors. Won't need them. No more hospitals. No dentists. No root canals. No funeral parlors. No funeral sermons. No funeral directors. No surgery. No bad reports from checkups. No bald heads. <laughs> I think. Maybe everybody be bald. I don't know. No teeth that slip. No walking with a limp. No wheelchairs. No high blood pressure. No diets. No loneliness. No bitterness and anger. No stupidity. No road rage. No long lines at the airport. No Al-Qaeda or ISIS terrorists. No car accidents. No telephone calls in the middle of the night. No nursing homes. No rebellious children who bring sorrow to your heart. No abusive parents. No parents who don't understand you. No Democrats and Republicans. No Green Party, no politicians, no lawyers. No IRS, no serial killers, no wasps, at least none with stingers, no spinach that tastes like spinach. <laughs> It'll be fried chicken or chocolate ice cream or maybe gravy and biscuits. 
No dog bites, no snake bites, no sprained ankles, no thorns on roses. No husbands that walk out on you. No divorce. And if I understand the scriptures, no marriage. No broken engagements. No fights with your boss. No pink slips, no bills. No bad relationships that make you cry. No trashy music, no bad TV programs, no bad movies, no bad language, no pornography, no perversion, no temptation, no bad thoughts, no pets that die, no armies, no bombs, no missiles, no goodbyes, no Russian invasions of Ukraine, no tears of sorrow. Tears of joy might be allowed. No death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, no more broken hearts. That is what the full presence of God brings and what the absence of the curse on this earth means, and we could multiply this a hundredfold. I don't think we really realize how much our experience is rooted and grounded in the curse that we live under. If you look at Revelation 22, verse 3, it says again in a different way, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And this is more, listen, this is more than Adam ever had. You realize that? Yes, Adam was in innocence, had a beautiful environment, a garden. He had a garden, we're going to get a city which probably has gardens. But he could sin. You and I will not be able to sin. We're not going to decide, okay, 10,000 years after they, they were there, we're going to say, I don't like this, and I want to leave. That's not going to happen. We are made perfect, and we cannot sin. It's removed far away from us. God's greatest promise, no more curse, which means no more tears, no more broken hearts. And then we come down to verse, uh, let me read verse 5 for you. It says also, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he moves to verse 6, and we look at the citizens of that city of our heavenly Jerusalem that's brought down to earth as the new Jerusalem. And on the positive side, notice, he said to me, it is done. It's a different Greek word than when it's, Jesus said it is finished on the cross, but the concept is the same. Those two places in the Bible where it says it's done, it's finished. He said, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then notice this. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So those who thirst, and it's talking about a spiritual thirst here. And what does he give? He gives the water of life. He gives eternal life. Now here in this passage, he's kind of giving an evangelistic appeal to those who might be reading this text. This is not a necessary appeal to those who lived during this time because the only saved people will be there in that experience. But in light of what it says, what do we say to the world? And he's saying to the world, 
to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life and notice without payment it's free it doesn't cost you anything you just simply receive the free gift of God it's so simple that people stumble over it and I, I believe you know, I looked at your doctrinal statement I always do that uh, I try to do that when I go to churches ahead of time uh, you're a grace church, you believe in grace. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, there are no braggers in heaven. Nobody is there saying that I'm here because I deserve to be. The only people who are in heaven are those who have admitted to God they don't deserve to be there and have cast themselves at the feet of Jesus trusting what he did on the cross as payment for their sins. Have you done that? I don't know all of you. I'm kind of the uh, drive-by preacher for the day. So I don't have to live with you like the pastor does. So I don't know you. If you're here, maybe you're a visitor. Maybe you've been a church member. I had a church member one time I was pastoring in Texas. And uh, I, I thought I had a you know, God, after the service, I felt like I had a really bad sermon. And that afternoon, one of my church members called me up, a lady named Barb, and she said, Pastor Mike, I want you to know while you were preaching today, I trusted the Lord as my Savior. Well, she was a member. And I thought it was a dud sermon, and it was, but there was some scripture in there. And God used it to touch your heart. And you may be here without Christ. And I'll pray, I pray you'll consider the claims of Christ upon your life and trust him today. He loves you. He died for you. Please come to him while you can. It's also, it says it in a different way. It says that it's, this, this place is for those who overcome, the one who conquers, the overcomer will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And I take the overcomers in the book of Revelation as believers. So those who overcome. And it also says, if you come down to the end of the chapter, it's those who have their name in, written in the Lamb's book of life. God's keeping track. And so this place is for those who have understood and responded to the gospel of Christ, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again from the dead, and they put their trust and faith in him to take away their sin. And those people we call believers or saints. And I hope that you're in that number. But tragically, when the time comes, when we get to this place, not everyone will be citizens of that city. We are not universalists. We don't believe that everybody gets saved. Jesus made it clear, broad is the way to destruction and narrow is the path to eternal life. And there are more people on the path to destruction than are on the path to eternal life. That's just the nature. Jesus taught that. Yes, it's sad and it's tragic. And our job is to take as many people as we can and, and lead them to Jesus so that they'll be with us when the time comes and this holy city comes down for us.
And look at verse 8. It's, it's the only negative verse in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Really, really, really negative verse. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. These are some of the hardest verses in the Bible for us. Yeah, we'd like to take an eraser and erase all those kinds of verses out of the Bible, wouldn't we? Well, we can't do that because God's word is the truth. And there is a destiny for the lost that is horrible. As great as our destiny is if we know the Lord, there's a horrible destiny for those who are lost. And it's described here. And maybe, you know, it says cowardly. Maybe you're cowardly. You read that verse, it says, uh-oh. Is that me? Immoral? Maybe you've committed immorality and you think about that? Idolatry? Maybe you've committed idolatry? Maybe you've lied? Now, how many of you have ever stolen something in your life? Maybe a little toy when you were a child? How many of you? Come on, let's be honest. Okay, all right. How many of you have ever told a lie, even a little white lie? Okay. Okay, well, you have, Chris, you have a congregation of thieves and liars, okay? Um, <laughs> now, how many times do you have to steal to be a thief? How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? Once. It's our nature to be lawbreakers. We've all done things that are wrong. But here, these things are not saying, okay, if you've had these things in, at all in your history of your life, you won't make it. He's saying that the people who are here who don't know God will stand before him as they are. See, you and I, because we're in Christ, don't stand before God as we are. We stand before God as if we are Jesus. And God looks at us as if we are Christ. He knows we're not, but he has chosen to consider us as Jesus and the righteousness that he has so that we can be forgiven and have a home forever with God. So don't be worried that you're in this list, but I would tell you this. You need to look at this list and grieve for those who are lost. I'm in a lot of churches, and I think there are a lot of people interested in Bible study, but not a lot of people are interested in evangelism. They're not interested in pointing other people to God. That is, at least in any deliberate way, if someone comes by and asks you a question, you're happy to answer it. But I would encourage all of you as Christians to be deliberate in trying to talk to people about the Lord. And some of our, you know, as a minister, my job actually allows me more contact with people to talk about the Lord, but sometimes you have to really pray and work and figure out ways that you can talk to unsaved people. So don't stay in an isolated bubble as a Christian. Spend time with lost people. Get to know them. And share your faith. If you don't, this may be their destiny. And we don't want that. We want them to share with us these words. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your written word. Thank you that you have given us promises for our future and that those promises help us to live now with great confidence and great joy. And I do pray, Father, that you will help us all to be alert to those around us who don't know Christ. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would energize us to care about people deeply. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the great promise that you have decided in your great majesty that we will have no more tears. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.